12 that we've just read is a lament. It's a lament and a request in an evil day. Every lament is inherently a request at some level because what a lament is doing is it is seeking the empathy of the one who has the greatest cause of all to lament. In other words, when we come and we cry out and we say, Lord, this is so broken, we come because we know he understands. He sees the brokenness much more than we could ever see. He empathizes and gets it. He is not only able to resonate, but he himself is the fountain and the definition and the standard of all goodness and all truth is the one to whom we come to, 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 to get rescripted, to get reset, to see things anew from his perspective as we pour out our hearts. And, and in that lament, there is an inherent request. Lord God, why? Lord God, do something. Lord God, make it right. Otherwise, why would we come? I mean, unless you just, you know, dig the personal therapy that comes from it, although that is a huge blessing that God grants peace by his spirit. But sometimes we know, especially when we're deeply grieved, that just feeling better isn't enough. We need God to act. We ask the Lord to move. We come to Psalm 12 today with lament and request. I think it is fitting for any number of reasons, and arguably we could do that just about any Sunday of the year. We come to do that today, I think, fitting. We come to the one who is sovereign, both to understand the need for lament in our broken world and the one sovereign as well to act in that world. In our passage today, though, there are a couple of requests that the psalmist makes that are explicit in addition to this overarching implicit call for God to act and to move. A writer of this psalm seeks, seeks something particular. He seeks the Lord to help him, to help him be faithful. He comes to the Lord and he says, there is faithful, faithlessness all around me. Lord, my God, help me come and help so that I might be found faithful. First, in our passage, we meet a description of the day of the psalmist where he mourns the loss of virtue and the lost loss of faithfulness. First, we see in verse 1, the first lament and the request, the lament, Lord, the faithful are disappearing. Lord, the faithful are disappearing. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. What do you think? Do you think that our generation today is largely marked by the growing of a people of faithfulness? That our society, and even outside of the church, and outside of faith, and outside of religious observance of things in that, and things of that nature, that just in general our society is marked by faithfulness, and by loyalty, by consistency, and by truth. Boy, the cynicism could be thick right now in this moment, couldn't it? And it hurts sometimes how far we are from what the Lord would have us be. And then we have markers that happen, occasions in the course of the regular passing of time that sort of stand as a signpost, don't they? Like the passing of Elizabeth. It feels a bit like not just the passing of a woman or a life. It feels a bit like the passing of an era, 
doesn't it? Was she a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't know. There are absolutely some who would say so, and I would love to believe so, and I'm not going to argue otherwise here this morning, just to say I didn't know her, so I won't speak authoritatively. I've heard some of the confessions that she has made of her trust in the Lord Jesus, and they are beautiful. I don't know for sure the truth of what many have said of her, but I do know that she held in her countenance and in her life a dignity, a dignity that seemed at the very least to be passing away even within the course of her own lifetime and her own generation, right? And with her passing feels almost like a big dose of it, you feel, is gone. At the very least, the new subjects of the crown will inherit a very different dignitary than the one that passed, no matter who it is. Because the generation is just producing a different kind of people, it feels like today. feels like she was the last in a long and noble lineage. Sort of the end of the second Elizabethan age. What of, then, the general state of faithfulness? What of the progress of our society? Are we looking for more faithfulness there? What about the state of the family today? What about our own communities? What about even within the church? Are we seeing an overwhelming growth in faithfulness? I genuinely ask this and leave it to your own discretion. You can say, well, it depends on which side of the bed I roll out of that morning. But the question is, are we seeing a new wave of the faithful wherever we go? You can decide, but I think we would all agree there is most definitely room for lament. Lord, the faithful are disappearing, the psalmist says. But here's the thing. Our hope is not in the good old days, is it? And we need to be careful not to fall into that trap. Uh, those who tend to be more conservative tend to want to look back to the days when things were better. Guess what? Things have never really been good the world's always been broken. The human heart has always been depraved. We have always need redemption. There has always been wickedness. Our hope is not in the good old days. It's in the ancient truths. Our hope is not in the generation or two that's passed from the scene most recently. It's in a Lord who is timeless. And our commission is to be found faithful regardless of the generation in which the Lord Places us. That's what the psalmist asks for in this psalm with his lament, is to be found faithful. And so it is the call for us and for every generation of true believers. Having been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Peter says, we are now placed in covenant, covenant with God through blood and, and by the sealing of the Spirit now. So then now we're called to be uh, those who keep covenant with the Lord. We can find the language of the keeping of covenant throughout the Old Testament, but I'll just point one of those up for you. You can jot down Psalm 103, 17 and 18. Psalm 103, 17 and 18. But the loving kindness of the Lord, by the way, loving kindness, if you've been around here at all, you know is uh, the magic English word for chesed, which means God's loyal love, his covenant love. But the covenant love of the Lord 
is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. That's the promise to every generation of those who have come to be by God's grace in covenant with him, now to be those who keep covenant. Or to use the same words in different language, we find in the New Testament the Lord Jesus' encouragement to be those who keep faith. And he himself laments after a particularly difficult situation in Luke 18. But when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? And the question is put to us, will we be those who keep faith? Now, the psalmist in Psalm 12 is writing in a time when the difficulties of his day, the circumstances of his generation are peculiarly difficult, tempting and drawing him away from faithfulness to the Lord. But here's the thing. There are fairgrounds of sin that find their home in our hearts long before we even get to the influence of the world, right? I don't need help to be faithless. My flesh can lead me there any given moment of any given day of the week. How much harder is it to be faithful when the prevailing winds blow against covenant keeping? The good news is that Christ is sufficient for both. And Yahweh and his grace was sufficient for both in the day of the psalmist as he turns to him. And so we, we like he, sense our need as we read this. The godly man, Lord, ceases to be. The faithful disappear from among the sons of men. And so we share in the psalmist's lament. And so then we share also in his request in this opening verse. Did you catch it? I skipped over it. It was awful quick. It was one word. It was the first word. Help, he says. There you go, that's it, help. The content of his request is not specified. The help that he asks for, at least in this verse, at least when he first utters it, is not elaborated upon. It will be, I believe, just by seeing the context overall. It's just a single word. Clearly, the dwindling of the godly weighs upon the psalmist at this point. As I, think, as I think it is right to weigh upon all of those who know the Lord. Lord, as I look around, it weighs upon me. Is there growing evidence of faithfulness in my family, in my community, in my society, in the world you have made, in the church, in the leaders of our day? Is there, Lord? If not, then, oh, Lord, we lament. And so, like the psalmist, we come this morning. We come for succor. We come for relief and for aid to the one who not only understands that, who not only sees the faithlessness even better than we see it, but he is the God who can create faithfulness. You see, lament in and of itself is not a pity party. Lament is not by itself worthless. Lament is powerful. Lament realigns us. Lament pleads with God. Lament meets him on his terms with, with his standard and says, I, I, I don't see your standard, Lord. Do, do your stuff. I stand in agreement with you. Lord, help, the psalmist says. Just that single word for now, but in that single word comes volumes of theology. Does it not? 
Here we have the, the covenant man. By the way, the word behind godly man at the beginning of verse 1 is the word chasid, which is related. It's derived from the same root for chesed. So that's why I'm going to call him the covenant man. What he says here is the covenant man, the covenant woman, the covenant person ceases to be as I look around. Where's the covenant keeper? And then he just cries out, help. So much that we could say just in that one word about our dependence and God's sufficiency, about what we should do when we see brokenness in our world. So many things the psalmist could have done, but the one thing he did above and beyond all was to come to the Lord and to pray, to ask that single word, help. The covenant man is a praying man. The covenant woman is a praying woman. Because therein lies dependence, and without it, there will be no faithfulness. Where do you turn for relief when the world presses upon you? When the playgrounds of sin in your own life run rampant? Where do you turn when depression, when a sense of being overwhelmed with all that is broken, comes in and presses upon you? Do you just pursue distractions? I'm prone to want to do so, for sure. But the covenant man, the covenant woman, the psalmist knows where help lies and turns to the Lord. Well, that's the opening verse, so uh, we better move on. We get the second lament then and the second request starting in verse 2. Lord, the wicked destroy with their speech. The wicked destroy with their speech. The first lament is for the loss, uh, loss of something that which is good. The second is for the abundance of that which is bad. And both are to be lamented. The psalmist again describes his day, a day of lies and a day of treachery. Notice, notice at least six ways. You could slice this maybe even more, but at least six ways that speech is made treacherous in this age that the psalmist gives us. Three treacherous uses of speech in verse 2. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. In other words, he says they speak emptiness. They have smooth speech and they use double talk, hypocrisy. Do you think in our day we could find any examples of speech that is emptiness? Or speech that is smooth to persuade or double talk. No, not in our world. Boston Children's Hospital in our day is proudly proclaiming itself to be and is a leader in gender-affirming surgeries. But this is emptiness in its most violent form. It is not gender-affirming these surgeries, it is gender-destroying. It is gender-confusing. It is gender-muddling. It is soul-searing. They would flatter themselves as liberators, setting free gender identities for those who are trapped within bodies, they would say, where they do not belong. But a closer description would be child abuse were it to have happened in any other generation and under any other circumstances. We grieve. We grieve that some are, are actually so hurt and so confused and so deceived and 
and so desperate that they would mutilate themselves for the sake of the hope of acceptance, for the sake of, of the hope of peace in their souls that they know no other way to find to escape into. And so into that muddled confusion of pain comes speech, which is, friends, nothing but treachery, right? To pick merely a single example. Lord, the wicked destroy with their speech. A fourth way is there in verse 3, boasting. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. Let's face it, nowadays you can't get clicks, you can't hold eyeballs, you can't get attention without great boasts, right? Who cares if it's true? It sells, right? And then a, a dominating, manipulating speech in verse 4, they have said, with our tongue we will prevail. The psalmist says that, that these are those that in their wickedness they would, they would purposely manipulate by their speech. It doesn't matter if we need to lie or deceive. Just speak smoothly. Just make it sound good like oil that goes down without any chewing. You don't have to cogitate on that. It just slides right in. The double talk that says one thing and then another, but no, it's okay. Just move along. Nothing to see here. With our tongue, we will prevail. And lastly, it's God-defying. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? In this world, brothers and sisters, we need to know that we might be able to win if we lie. And we need to resolve ahead of time that that's not worth it, right? We need to resolve ahead of time that to stoop to all of the things which are sold to us, that are marketed to us, all the, the means by which others might win, we must say, look, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're a people of truth, and I have no other choice. Even if I lose, that's God's problem. That's God's deal. He's big enough. Even if I lose, I'm to be a covenant woman or a covenant man and not let my speech be of these kinds. It hurts when the world does this, and it seems they gain the eyeballs, and they gain public attention, and they win. Hurts even more so when somebody in the name of Christ does it, though. Our generation is one that believes that we can define our own existence. That's what we have here at the end of verse 4. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Uh, Carl Truman has written a great book uh, about this, a great um, commentary on our cultural understanding and our moment called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. The, the dude's like a um, serious egg-headed intellectual, and he quotes a lot of phil philosophers, and he's awesome. And, and I read it, and I feel smart, and I can't understand most of it, but I feel smart when I'm done. Um, but, but what does come through real clearly is that um, the problem isn't just out there. The problem's in here because I'm part and parcel of the culture that, that took the bait, swallowed it, and has been in like since the beginning. It's part of my DNA, and so fettering my way out of it is difficult. Um, let me read to you one of the quotes that he makes of uh, Charles Taylor 
on uh, what is known as expressive individualism. You go, what is expressive individualism? I would just say, apart from Jesus, it's everything you believe, okay? You are expressive individualism, and so am I, apart from Jesus. Ready? Here's the description. This is the understanding of life that emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and to live out one's own humanity as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or by the previous generation or by religious or political authority of any kind. That sounds good, doesn't it? Mostly because we're awash in it. We're like, yeah, of course, I agree with that. But the problem is that that worldview exalts the individual to be the final and the only authority in their lives. No society can survive that tries to build on that foundation. That is the foundation upon which our society is building itself and rebuilding itself today. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? And so, oh Lord, help us. We lament for the wickedness we see in the world and how it reflects so often at times the brokenness even in my own soul. Those who speak and believe as if they are answerable to no one will not be too terribly concerned what they destroy in the process. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us that we not be the same. Lament, Lord, the wicked destroy with their speech, and then comes the request, his second request, cut them off. There it is at the beginning of verse 3. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. You know, sometimes scripture speaks so directly we're uncomfortable with it. But when it comes to real wickedness, it is actually a source of great relief that God sees clearly. Understand what the psalmist is not doing here. He is not saying, I'm going to go cut off some flattering lips. He comes before the Lord with his lament. And he says, oh, Lord, cut them off. Vengeance is yours, you will repay. And so the psalmist comes and puts them in the Lord's hands. That's what a good lament does. It places all things under the lordship of the creator and the God who is wise. This kind of, of a refrain asking for God to be Lord over all, that's common in the Psalms. It asks for the Lord to judge with equity and to act in righteousness, and he will. One day, as we've already been reminded this morning, praise God for that. The psalmist entrusts this entire situation into the perfect wisdom and the perfect mercy and the perfect power of the only one who fully understands how to execute all judgments. And that is a glorious place to be, putting it in his hands. The desire for evil to be judged. What am I going to say next? is absolutely a good thing. It is absolutely a good thing. Why? Because you were made in the image of God. You have an innate sense of righteousness and unrighteousness. You were created as a moral being. Every human being is and was and does. Now, our conscience gets seared. Our understanding gets skewed. Our sense of righteousness gets perverted. But understand that we can't escape moral judgments. And when we come and we bring our injustices to the Lord and we cry out, he is the one who cleanses those and scrubs them and 
fortifies them. And the psalmist is doing what is right and good, and it is also right and good for us to do. Lord, we desire that evil would be judged. Restrain the wicked. Break the arm. Shatter the teeth. This is the language of the psalms, right? The Lord will judge with equity and righteousness. Here the psalmist asks for that. We long for evil to be finally put away one day, for all lies to be answered one day, and all things to be put under the lordship of Christ, and they will be. Psalm 98, you can jot down 98 verses 7 through 9. Revel with me, brothers and sisters, in these truths. Let the sea roar in all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. That's our celebration. He will do it perfectly in his day. Lord, the wicked destroy with their speech, but there is a day, so we put them in your hands. Now, this is the, lem- the lament, the first half, the psalmist crying out, but something wonderful happens in the middle of the psalm. Something miraculous happens in the middle of the psalm, and that is that Yahweh hears and he responds. I would dig it if I prayed like this, and while I was praying, God decided to answer. You've had moments like that, and you go, wow, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you hear and you know. Yahweh responds now in verse 5 in compassion, and he says, I will arise. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. Speaking of that needy one, speaking of that afflicted one. Here, Yahweh not only hears what the psalmist has said, but guys, understand, he, he is seen. Did, did, did the psalmist say anything about devastation? I mean, no, I guess it could be implied. But he didn't say anything about how he's being affected. Did he say anything about affliction or groaning? No, he didn't say any of those things. Why? Because he's not informing God of something the Lord doesn't already know. The Lord has already seen the devastation. He already knows the afflicted. He has already heard the groaning, and he is well acquainted with the needy. Brothers and sisters, do not think that the Lord God does not know the grief of this age. Right? Do not think for a moment the Lord God does not get it. Long before we ever bring it to him, long before we ever have such burden in our soul to cry and say, Lord God, why? Long before. He's already seen it. His compassion has gone ahead. And here then now are words of promise. He says he will rescue the needy, the afflicted, the groaning. Because of their devastation, he says, now I will arise. And then where, where, where's the promise? Look at this at the end of verse 5. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. He desires truth to be his experience, this broken one. He, he desires that resonating that he knows inherently in his soul to be true and right and real. He longs for it, and the Lord says, I'll give it to him. 
one day. I'll bring him safely into that place. What a great promise that is to chew on. If it's your desire to be faithful in this generation, then know that the Lord loves to rescue those who pray like that, right? These are the kind of people we should be, these kind of praying covenant men and women he will rescue. We're reminded again at this point that the battle is not really out there, right? The battle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians says. The battle is here in our hearts. There is no one and there are no circumstances that can make you unfaithful. Oh, I blame all kinds of things for making me unfaithful, but it's a lie. All my circumstances can do, all that people can do, is to expose the unfaithfulness if it's already there in my heart. But there is one who can make me faithful. And this is what the psalmist longs for, and this is what Yahweh says I will do. I will set him in the safety for which he longs, so that he might be fortified to be faithful no matter the difficulty of his day. That is a good word. Let him help make you faithful by the spirit that he gives. Now, Yahweh having answered, the psalmist now speaks, and it's a whole new day. The lament has not gone away completely. It'll circle back at the end. The circumstances have not yet even necessarily changed one iota, as the end will show, but everything that really matters has. And so the psalmist now in 6 and 7 stands upon this promise and he proclaims Yahweh builds his people with his word. Yahweh builds his people with his word. And I hope you catch the poetic beauty of this because if, if the wicked can destroy with their speech, then the Lord God can thwart all that by a word. How about the words of Yahweh, verse 6? The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. This is the psalmist now embracing, soaking in what, what, as best as I could understand it, I can only interpret as the Spirit of God supernaturally communicating to him the answer of Yahweh. The psalm is ascribed to David. We know that David acted as a prophet so apparently a supernatural revelation has spoken to David in verse 5. I don't have any problem with that. It happens lots of other places with David and lots of other places in Scripture. And so the psalmist, probably David, but even as it's recorded by the psalmist who compiled this and all of God's people since, stands now on that promise. And he says, I hate all that speech, and it, it breaks my heart, and it cuts me to the quick. But Lord, your speech... Your speech, no more slippery ground, right? No more double talk, no more, no more lies, just the truth that fortifies, just, just reality that sets me straight again. Words tried as in a furnace seven times over, this promise to bring me into safety for which I long. Lord God, this builds me. This promise builds you. And what is the psalmist doing in 6 and 7? This is now his resolve to stand in confidence upon what Yahweh has said. 
Have the circumstances changed? No. Has anything else changed? Yes. Everything, as far as the psalmist is concerned. The covenant man, the covenant woman, responds with resolve when she hears the word of the Lord and builds her life upon that. Right? God has said, I will preserve. And so the psalmist echoes it there in seven. You will preserve. I love it. What a rejoicing. What a celebration. You think that's music in the ears of the Lord to hear his beleaguered saint speak back to him the truths that he has promised to his child. Huh. Now, one of the reasons, as I've already alluded to, that I am calling this resolve at this point is because the situation hasn't changed. It's not just celebration. It's not just uh, victory, right? It's not just praise, right? Those are all fitting descriptions after God wins. And we have a lot of those in the Psalms. But as far as the circumstances, nothing has changed except the psalmist. And so the need remains in verse 8, and there is a final lament. The reality of a society in corruption still. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Five decades after the triumph of the sexual revolution in the United States of America, how do you think we stand you think these words could maybe describe us, the wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. We live in a pornified society. It just is. It just is what is in this world today in ways that we, I mean, I don't, I don't, even, know, I don't even know anything different. I've never known anything different in my lifetime. We're awash in images were regularly fed lies about both homosexual and heterosexual lies and other perversions, right? Regularly. And that's just to pick one issue. Is wickedness exalted among the sons of men in our day? Sure it is. So what are the righteous to do? They're to walk faithfully, but man, the problem is those seeds have already gone deep into my heart, so I need a lot of help every single day. I need the grace of God every single day. And so do you. And then when the world calls to us, it's doubly hard. And so sometimes the very best thing we do is fall on our knees, throw up our hands, and we lament like a good covenant man would do, right? And when we lament, we remember there is one, there is one who keeps his covenants. There is one who does stay faithful, and he cannot lie. He cannot double speak. Oh, he's persuasive, but it's not because of smoothness and flattery. It, becomes, it comes from the, the power of character and the authority of his very being. He speaks truth because he is the way and the truth and the life. And he is your hope and mine to be rescued. And he preserves his own. Brothers and sisters, no one can make you unfaithful. No one has the power to do that. So, 
when you feel the temptation to be so or you feel the grief of being overwhelmed in a world that isn't. Pray this lament. I commend it to you. It's a good one for me this week. Cast your requests upon him. Recall his great compassion. Build upon his word and resolve like the psalmist. Stand with me and let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we love you, we treasure you, we cherish you, and we relish the truth of your word. We need your help in a myriad of ways to rescue us from, from misunderstandings and confusions and lies that have become so much a part of us that we don't even realize it. We're blind. But you, Lord God, are glorious and good. Bring your light. Bring your truth into our hearts and our lives this week. Thank you that you rescue us. And praise you that when we cry out for grief and the brokenness in our world, that you don't chastise us for bringing so much of it ourselves, but you, you welcome us and you do your surgery and you begin to heal. And then there you protect and you keep and you preserve. Lord God, let us be those who are faithful. Help us to be faithful for I can't do it on my own. And thank you for Christ who is so perfectly faithful in my place and Holy Spirit for you coming to do that in me. This is what we ask and we will praise you for it ahead of time. All for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.